0: Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. Today we are in chapter 28, and our reading will be verses 3 through 25. As we look at the subject this morning, abandoned by God, uh, probably one of the worst three words that could ever appear or be said or read ever. And yet today, we're going to witness the reality uh, in the life of King Saul um, as he, in desperation, attempts to find help, but is uh, anything but helped. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself, And put on other garments, and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And and she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage, homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I should do and Samuel said why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy?" shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul when she saw that he was terrified. She said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go your own way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now when the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, then they rose and went away that night. This is God's word, let us pray. Father, we do pray that as we sit under the preaching of your word today, we would ask for... The ministry of the Holy Spirit to both empower the one who speaks and the one who listens. Let us lay aside everything that would hinder us from receiving the engrafted Word of God which is able to save our souls. Lord, we thank you that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the Word of the Lord. So we ask today, Lord, that this preaching of your Word will give birth to faith that looks outside of itself and lays hold of Christ and we pray in his name Amen what a passage huh and I imagine you're intrigued about it now the most interesting thing about this passage is that the writer of the book of Samuel sort of leads us into suspense because we just left with David being in the Philistine army and he's in the army that's about to attack Israel and we're wondering how he's gonna get out of this mess And lo and behold, the author of 1 Samuel says, no, not yet. I want to tell you a little more about Saul. So what he's doing is comparing and contrasting the characters of both Saul and David. We get Saul this week, we'll get David next week. So that's why he delays telling us. But this chapter is fascinating in many ways. But utter hopelessness is what it presents. Utter hopelessness is the darkest of all human experiences. It is the realization that there is absolutely no prospect of any kind of future or anything positive to look forward to. Hopelessness, when it overcomes a person, strips away every motivation or tinge of enthusiasm for living because there is nothing, absolutely nothing good to look forward to. Even fear is better than hopelessness. When we are afraid, we usually dread something that could happen to us or that may happen as bad as we imagine, but there is usually the possibility that things will not turn out uh, better than we expect. There is, in other words, at least some hope. Hopelessness is the experience of believing that there is absolutely no future left worth having. On the one hand, counselors and psychologists are kept busy helping people who have lost hope for the future because in their depressed state of mind they have become unrealistically negative and totally cynical. They need perhaps to see that there are people who exist who do love them and will continue to do so and that there is uh, valuable work for them to do and that they can do it, and that there are joys ahead for them to embrace. The terrible experience of hopelessness can be uh, a type of blindness. Christian believers, however, are not immune from experiencing such dark times. If you read much in church history, you will read about various saints of the past who experienced what they called the dark night of the soul. It was like their lives were enveloped in darkness and they prayed and the heavens were brass and they had no sense of God's presence. And they, would, they uh, felt totally shut, up, uh, shut out and cut off and had no sensation of, at all that God was either with them or for them. And these periods sort of happened on and off for various lives in the history of the church, where certain believers struggled with what they called the dark night of the soul. Well, the ultimate dark night of the soul we're going to see in this chapter, and that is for King Saul. The Apostle Paul graphically described the utter hopelessness of all who are separated from Christ as having, in the book of Ephesians, no hope, and without God in the world. He was not describing here a conscious sensation of hopelessness, but a real situation of hopelessness. To be in this transient world, but to be without God, is indeed to have utterly no hope. First Samuel 28, we're going to see, is the hopelessness of King Saul exposed, and though it's painful to watch and witness, we will benefit by looking at it carefully as the man when he found himself having no hope without God and in the world. So the story picks up uh, uh, with Samuel's death, which we've known about already. Samuel's dead, and Saul uh, is uh, shutting down Uh, what is this uh, necromancy anyway do you know what that is have you ever heard of a seance have you ever heard of a witch or a medium at a seance summoning up the dead that's necromancy okay and that is what Saul in the beginning had condemned righteously so because God's law is against it and so uh, the Philistines have become very aggressive the note about Samuel's death Is a flashback for this story, however, it's important to remember that Samuel had died. Saul had banned necromancers and soothsayers and was simply doing what was in accord with Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 9 through 22. The Philistine assault, however, was something to worry about. Let me tell you what the Philistines were doing. They had an amazing strategy. What they basically did is on one side of the mountain, there's a valley, mountain on each side. Israel's over here in Gilboa. The Philistines are over here at Shunem. And in between them all is the Valley of Jezreel. So the Philistines are attempting to come down in the middle of that valley, conquer Israel, set up a wall to prevent southern Israel from uh, continuing to trade, get supplies, all of what would be helpful from northern Israel, sort of a, a prefiguring of the divided kingdom which would come later. And so that's what the Philistines were doing, and Saul was panicking all over the place. And the reason he's panicking all over the place is he realizes he's been cut off. These conditions bring ulcers for just about anybody, but all the more for somebody in Saul's state. The first and proper step for Saul in this case was to do what he did, to ask for Yahweh's help, to ask for direction. But Yahweh did not answer him, not by a dream, not by the Urim, which are the stones the priest read. Uh, He couldn't go to any priests for help because he killed all of them, if you remember a few chapters back. And Samuel was no longer. And so Yahweh's silence to Saul did not silence Saul's terror. He wrongly turned to what he had rightly prohibited. He asked men to locate a woman skilled in necromancy. Perhaps a word from the dead might help him face tomorrow. Though necromancy and associated arts have been banned, Saul's men seem to know precisely where a practitioner may be found. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Uh, It's all banned, but everybody knew where she was and what she was doing. With Saul disguised in non-royal attire, the company pays its nocturnal call in indoor. Saul's request is quite straightforward. Please practice divination for me by contacting the dead and bring up for me whomever I tell you. And the woman's suspicion is immediate. She knows about government front operations and apparently fears she's being set up as part of another pagan bust Saul obligingly swears an oath of immunity to reassure her the reader must not miss the irony Saul swears the oath by Yahweh by Yahweh's life as he seeks help from a woman that Yahweh has condemned for all his degeneration Saul is orthodox to the last the woman consents asking the name of the contact. But when she sees Samuel, she screams and she also sees through Saul's disguise. Now why did Saul disguise himself? Two reasons. Number one, to get to the witch at Endor, he had to go right by the Philistine army's lines. And so he disguised himself so he wouldn't be caught. The second reason, he goes to her at night because he didn't want anybody to see him doing this. Because he would banded. And so now he speaks to the woman and uh, uh, she screams as she recognizes Saul's disguise and she persists with more reassurance and when satisfied or Saul persisted with more reassurance and when satisfied that Samuel is up, bows down and does homage. Questions come thick and fast as we look at this particular incident. Wasn't Israel forbidden to engage in these practices? And the answer is absolutely yes. But people, even ancient Israel or contemporary church, regularly do what Scripture prohibits. You are aware of that, right? People often do what Scripture prohibits. Was this episode a piece of fakery? I don't think so, and here's why. I don't think the text tends to suggest that, as some argue, that since the woman screamed when she saw Samuel, she herself must have not expected his appearance. Therefore, her usual practice must have been imposture and duplicity. One cannot be sure. The sight of Samuel in verse 12 may not be the sole explanation for her screams. Verse 12 helps us explain the screen that it's the sight of Samuel brought the sudden insight that only Saul would have such a passion to consult someone like Samuel. Hence her client was Saul and she was doomed. This is the man who banned her arts. She thought she'd been set up. She thought she was done in and doomed, and the story carries the stamp of realism from the central and sobering prophetic messages of Samuel to the obvious reticence to answer all our curious questions along with its intended failure to provide any how-to information for budding necromancers. In any case, we must remember that Scripture describes such practices not as futile, But rather as pagan. Yahweh forbids Israel to use these means not because they do not work. But because they are wicked. How then does one explain this piece of necromancy? Well because of our commitment to the sovereignty of God. We would say I suppose by the power and permission of God. For his own reasons, God must have permitted Samuel to come up in order to speak his word of truth and doom to Saul. Yahweh's word was spoken even if it came through an illegitimate method. Doesn't this case of effective necromancy open the way for justifying the practice of consulting the dead? No. Because Deuteronomy 18 has already stated the doctrinal position. Moreover, the case is simply the exception that proves the rule. That is, it is as if 1 Samuel 28 is saying, now you can see why this sort of hokey pokey is prohibited in Israel. Look at Saul. It only incapacitates him and destroys him. So much for preliminaries. You're going to faint at this point. Now let's begin at point number one. (laughs) That was all introduction. Why is the teaching of this strange and sad narrative? There are four propositions in your bulletin that I want to get across and then we'll be done. The first one has to do with the hopelessness of abandonment hopeless misery the most hopeless misery any of us can ever experience in all of life is to be abandoned by God what the narrative is already reported is that Saul himself is what Saul himself miserably confirms in verse 15 I am in terrible distress the Philistines are fighting against me and God has turned away from me and does not answer me anymore not by prophet or dreams Certainly as king, responsible for the leadership of Yahweh's people, Saul himself would normally have the privilege of Yahweh's direction, especially for something as significant as a battle. Now, however, he can hear the shouts of the Philistines, but not the voice of Yahweh. He faces the crisis of his life, and God has nothing to say to him. Some of the saddest words in all of Scripture are printed in 1st Samuel 28:15. Samuel explains that Yahweh is simply carrying out what Samuel had previously declared to him he's tearing the kingdom from Saul and giving it to his neighbor David why is Yahweh mute Samuel harks back to the episode of chapter 15 as you did not listen to the voice of Yahweh and did not carry out his hot anger against Amalek Therefore, Yahweh has done this thing to you today. Saul picks up the key word from chapter 15, which is the word to listen or hear, Shema. There, Saul confirmed the tragic tendency he has shown since chapter 15. In chapter 15, he tailored God's command to his own and his people's preferences. God told him to destroy everything. He kept the best of everything of the Amalekites for himself. To offer as a sacrifice, so he said. Saul would have called it accommodation. Samuel calls it what it really is, total rebellion. Saul thought it prudent. Samuel labeled it as stubbornness. Perhaps Saul liked to think that he had only reinterpreted Yahweh's word. uh, Samuel charges they had simply rejected God's word. If you persistently, if you despise God's word, the Bible says he'll take his word away from you. If you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will endure God's silence. Does God, does his patience ever run out with sinners? Does, that, does it ever hit the wall? Does it ever end? Well, in this case, it certainly looks that way. If you re- persistently refuse to obey God's word, you will endure God's Silence. How crucial, then, are one's first responses to the gospel. To the initial call to enter the kingdom of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and this quote is in the front of your bulletin if you want to read along. Spurgeon tells of a man on his deathbed who was uh, sent for him. In his lifetime, the man had jeered at Spurgeon. Had often denounced Spurgeon as a hypocrite. You know, Spurgeon had a tendency to smoke cigars. And this woman in his congregation came to him one time and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, how can you smoke cigars? He's sinning against God. And he said, oh, ma'am, it's, it's fine as long as it's in moderation. She said, well, what do you consider moderation? He said, only one in your mouth at a time. <laughs> That's Spurgeon. I love Charles Hatton. If I had a son, I might have named him Charles Hatton. But it don't go with posy, does it? Not really. Now, of this instance, of this man, Spurgeon wrote, He had, when in health, wickedly refused Christ. Yet in his death agony, he had uh, superstitiously sent for me. Too late. He sighed the ministry of reconciliation and sought to enter at the closed door, but he was not able. There was no space left him then for repentance, For he had wasted the opportunities which God had long granted to him. What in the world could be worse? To know you need to repent and you can't do it. It's horribly solemn. This is the most hopeless mystery in all of life to be abandoned by God. Once you're a pastor like me and people get relatives who are on their deathbed you often get a phone call and they ask you to go speak to their relative and share the gospel with them and i'm always happy to do that and i've had some of the people i've shared the gospel with respond to it pray with me one of my dad's co-workers i'll never forget it i went in i shared the gospel with me he looked at me through tears and said why has no one ever told me that before and i said well i don't know but i'm telling it to you today And I'm telling you, you don't have long and you better repent and receive Jesus. And he did. And I did that man's funeral, but I had another man who I went to, I did the same thing. And he just hardened. He became very angry with me. And he told me to get out of the hospital. That what was wrong with the world were people like me uh, preaching lies. That man died. I don't know if he had a a moment where he repented but what about you have you heard the gospel message and have you kind of got it on hold where you're thinking well I want to go live my life and do what I really want to do and have a lot of fun and then when I get old and get ready to die then I'll ask Jesus to save me well as John Calvin would say good luck with all that We know there's no such thing as good luck. There's providence. Some of you right now sitting in front of me are hardening your heart and resisting. And I pray the Holy Spirit will overcome that resistance and draw you to the Savior where there is life. Nothing worse, nothing more hopeless than a heart abandoned by God. But there will become a point where reprobation sits in where people are given over to a reprobate mind a mind past feeling a mind past any fear of judgment a a heart so hardened that uh, um, I was listening to a sermon on hell the other day and it was a really interesting sermon and it's not a subject I like to think about a lot because I think I know some people who might be headed that way but I was listening to a sermon on hell and the preacher said What makes hell, hell? He said, what is the worm that dies not in the fire that continues in a person's life in hell? And it's the regret that they see they need to repent, but they can't. They can't. The next point. Burdens can be lighter when seen in their proper context. If you look at this passage in its larger setting, leads us to a second proposition. Because if you compare what I mentioned earlier, chapters 27, 28, and then ultimately 29, you see what the writer is doing is he is sort of setting up the material to compare and contrast the life of Saul with the life of David. And uh, Saul does not come out well why does the author want to do that why not finish the perfectly exciting story of david why not go right on from chapter 28 2 to 29 1 why interrupt this sequence with an account that took place some time later why interject chapter 28 verses 3 through 25 right here in the book of first samuel have you ever been watching something you really wanted to see Let's say I'm sitting home, it's an October Saturday, the University of Tennessee is playing Alabama. And we're ahead, which is a miracle, hadn't happened in 17 years, seen every one of them, died a thousand times. But I'm watching the game, Tennessee's ahead, it's the middle of the second quarter, all of a sudden a message comes through my television, you've heard this before, we interrupt your television programming to let you know that Canada has bombed uh, Michigan or something <laughs> you know now I, I was in the fifth grade when John F Kennedy was assassinated which was a huge impact upon the culture but I remember I went home and of course you know uh, we couldn't do anything because we were supposed to be grieving and I'm a kid and I'm sorry it happened, but let's go play football or do something. I'm not, I don't want to be in the house. So we turned on the television, and we only had three channels. Can you imagine living with three channels? Maybe public TV. And I sat there, and I watched over and over again what they seemed to be playing. And I remember going to my daddy and complaining to him, when are they going to stop this? My dad said, well, it's probably going to run on three or four more days. You better get used to it or go do something else. Just get out of my hair. <laughs> Leave me alone. But I remember being so upset by that. But, but that's what this passage does. It's an interruption to allow truth to break through. Why do that? Why interrupt a perfectly enjoyable football game on a lovely October afternoon? Because at that moment, there's something far more urgent for you to consider. Matters of great importance have the right to preempt time. i don't intend this in a silly way but this is essentially what the biblical writer does in chapter 28 i interrupt this tension-filled story with david's dilemma to tell you something of far greater importance even though it's out of proper chronological order the reason he intrudes 28 is because he wants to place David's dilemma and Saul's dilemma side by side. And by doing so, he's saying to you, don't worry your head right now about, about David. You must see something that's far more critical. I interrupt this narrative to tell you that there's something far worse than being caught among the Philistines, namely being cut off from all communion with the Lord our God. Hence, by selecting the sequence in his story, the writer emphasizes our previous proposition. Nothing is so utterly miserable than finding in the hour of your greatest need that you have long ago placed yourself beyond the sound of God's words and that you are totally alone, cut off. That puts David's trial in perspective for us. David's trouble is not light, but Saul's trouble is far worse He is without the Word of God. Burdens appear lighter when seen in their proper context. Now I'm going to tell you something I hate. When I'm going through a very difficult time or a hard time, please don't ever say this to me. I know you're, what is he going to say? Uh, Have you ever been around anybody who sort of flippantly says, well, there's always somebody worse off than you are. That is not comforting to me. That does not help me. That does not encourage me. It may be true. But in the morning, or (laughs) at the end of the day, it doesn't help. You have to put your trials in context. And sometimes it's important to put them in context and sort of rank them. Do you realize that all you have suffered is not really so tragic as someone saying to themselves, God has turned away from me forever. The next one that I want to talk about is driven by desperation to futile attempts to find hope. That's what Saul does. Saul goes against everything he's ever taught or ever believed to go to this woman to find help because he's desperate. He's lost his mind. Spiritual desperation can often provide misdirection for us. And he goes and he attempts to take matters into his own hand and to recover God's presence if possible, to speak to Samuel and somehow find his way back in. But it doesn't work. And here is an important problem, I think, that often faces us as a church, as individuals. Sometimes believers are convinced that they are in Saul's shoes, that they are cut off from God's presence, doomed to his silence, forever under his frown. I think a couple of weeks ago I mentioned William Cowper, the contemporary of um, John Newton. And Cowper was a hymnist, and he was at times convinced that he was a reprobate. He suffered depression beyond depression, hopelessness beyond hopelessness. And Newton would spend hours with him trying to help him recover. One can understand why believers in Jesus might be sometimes drawn to the conclusion that God has cast them off. Sometimes God leaves us in our affliction so long that we're tempted to say he has forsaken me. And the Bible acknowledges that such conditions can sometimes prevail in the life of God's people. The Bible recognizes someone can say, shall we say, objectively forsaken by God as was Saul, that others can seem to be forsaken or fear that they have been. But the Bible is full of, especially in the Psalms, numerous Psalms of lament. Where people cry out, how much longer, Yahweh, this is Psalm 13, will you go on forgetting me forever? How much longer will you keep hiding your face from me? Notice what happens. What does the psalmist do when he thinks that Yahweh has forgotten him and hidden his face? Does he turn to the necromancers? Does he... Uh, go have his uh, get a tarot card reading does he check his horoscopes no he cries out to God when believers are terrified at God's absence they instinctively turn to the God they think he, that has forsaken them and complain to him about forsaking them they offer a legitimate pouring out of their souls to him the faithful man's anguish is still unrelieved at the end of his prayer often, but he is still speaking to Yahweh about it. He's still crying out. And faced with God's absence, the believer is concerned with God's absence rather than with a lack of insight for his or her current problem. Others, however, may be more concerned with guidance than with knowing the guide spiritual desperation can be misdirected why does god do that why does he seem to withdraw his presence why does he seem to leave us in our affliction he is doing work in us in those times and it never feels like it. probably some of the greatest spiritual growth you've ever experienced some of the greatest character building that will ever occur in your life happens during times like this To equip you to prepare you to enable you to face what's coming I don't know but it strengthens the faith faith (coughs) is like a muscle and some of our faith muscles are flabby and we need to work out And during times like these are times spiritually where we work out the muscle of faith. We say, Lord, I don't feel anything. I don't see you. I have no sense of your presence. Where are you? Why is all this happening to me? And the heavens are brass. But there's something very important you need to know before we conclude. I'm not going to leave you hanging there. I'm going to tell you what to do about it. Which is the fourth proposition. There is a light that shines in darkness. The narrative that is extremely heavy here with hopelessness for Saul and Israel, and yet if we will allow the text to push us beyond itself, we can suggest a fourth truth. There is a light that shines in the darkness. At the words of Samuel, Saul is totally overcome, fearful, foodless, exhausted. The woman... Saw how utterly terrified Saul was and begged him to listen to her advice and to eat what she wanted to prepare and Saul refused but finally consented. It's a sad scene. The woman provides a meal fit for a king. She butchers the calf in the stall, bakes unleavened bread. The bit of food she promised was typical Eastern underkill. Yet all this consists of making someone as comfortable as possible before he faces total disaster. What sheer hopelessness and despair ooze out of the last sentence, they got up and went away that night. Does that scene in the life of Saul not remind you of another Last Supper? Does it not bring to mind another religious and very talented individual, one who had preached Christ, had done miracles in his name, and you remember how you shudder every time you read those words about him in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, which says, So after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out, and it was night. You remember the scene in Judas's exit. Surely we do not think John merely wanted to tell us the time. He wanted to tell us it was night. Oh, yes, it was night. It was like entering the outer darkness itself. But there's someone else who entered the darkness. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a mistake you can make if you're not really careful. You can begin to think that you're quite detached from all of this, that you're better than, not quite so stupid as deserving of better than Saul or Judas. And of course, you're dead wrong. But the glory of the gospel is, is that God's Son went through the darkness of God's absence for us and the darkness and agony of God's forsakenness for us. Is not Jesus' cry very much like God has turned away from me and answers me no more? But at the battle of Golgotha, Jesus has walked out into the outer darkness in order that you might walk in the light of life. Now the question presses upon us, have you yet been seeking the one who has endured this darkness for you so that you could live in the light? The difference between us and Saul as believers is we have at the right hand of the Father one who has walked through far more darkness and abandonment than any of us will ever know. We are connected to one who, and, and we have access now into the presence of the Lord. We can always claim the promise that of, of the book of Hebrews chapter 4 where we can go into the Uh, with boldness to the throne of grace and seek mercy and help and grace in time of need. We have that. Though it may be dark for us, it's never outer darkness because of our virtue of being united to Christ. He experienced the utter abandonment of God so that you and I can forever know communion with Him and nothing can break that for the life of a true believer. Have you come to Christ? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? The book of Romans tells us, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you done that? Have you thought about doing that? Are you wrestling with that? Are you just kind of putting that uh, book back on the shelf and not? I'm not going to think about that today. Kind of like Scarlett O'Hara. I'm not, I'm not thinking about that today. Think about that later. No, you need to think about it today. Today is the accepted day of salvation. Come to Christ. Receive Him. Trust Him. Lay hold of Him by faith. Look outside of yourself and cast yourself upon Him and His mercy, and He will catch you in the everlasting arms of love. And he will never reject you, forsake you, or leave you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how we pray today. That the word of the living God would work. You said to us that your word in the book of Isaiah will not return to us void or empty. As the rain comes down from heaven and the snows and melt and they give water to the earth which causes seeds to bring forth and bud and create life, so shall your word be that goes forth from your mouth. It shall prosper where you send it. Send it today, Lord, to the hearts of those who need you. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we have from the depths of our being gratitude to want to give back to you a portion of that which you've entrusted to us as stewards. And may we do so with a glad and gracious heart, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.